from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is Ag Day. Celebrating everything about the spud. You learn about um, some of the great inventions that happened right here in Blackfoot um, that really revolutionized the potato industry. We visit a museum that is about all things potato. Reaching new lows, the latest historic levels reached on the Mississippi and Platte Rivers. As we get a better idea about the damage Florida producers suffered in Hurricane E. If we look back at Hurricane Irma, the, the amount that we estimated of damage on Hurricane Irma does fall within this range um, that we're presenting here for Hurricane Ian. The bottom line dollar figures right now on Ag Day. Good morning, I'm Clinton Griffiths. As much as a billion and a half dollars in ag may have been lost in Florida due to Hurricane Ian. The University of Florida releasing its preliminary report saying over 1.2 million acres of agricultural land was impacted by the high-end Category 4 storm. Ag Day's Michelle Rook joins us with a breakdown of the damage assessed so far. Clinton, the report says even though the Florida coast bore some of the worst impacts of the storm, the strong winds and rain battered a wide area of the peninsula. Those adding up the damage say despite heavy flooding that prevented them from getting a full assessment of some fields, they're predicting the following. Citrus crop losses up to $304 million, depending on the level of fruit drop and damage to branches and other impacts, but the entire state's 375,000 acres of citrus was impacted. Vegetables and melons up to $394 million. Livestock operations and producers of animal products are expected to suffer losses of up to $222 million. Experts say the damage for agricultural producers is similar to past hurricanes. You know, we're hearing some very high percentages being reported in the news. It's not completely devastating to the entire um, agriculture industry in the state. That does not mean that individual operations won't have um, very different impacts. But also, um, if we look back to uh, Hurricane Irma, which hit a similar, uh, you know, hit the peninsula, uh, unlike Michael, which went up the panhandle. If we look back at Hurricane Irma, the the amount that we estimated of damage on Hurricane Irma does fall within this range um, that we're presenting here for Hurricane Ian. So I think it's on on par with or will potentially be similar to what we experienced with Hurricane Irma. However, court says they don't have good information yet on the depth and duration of flooding, so their damage assessment could go up. So the impacts of that flooding on farming and ranching operations is still uncertain, whether or not there'll be impacts to yield or quality that are not yet apparent. There's also uncertainty tied to grower decisions on delayed planting, replanting of damaged crops, or delays to production due to infrastructure damage. And the University of Florida economist did not look at the impact the hurricane will have on the price of damaged commodities. Court says that's because there are so many other factors outside of Florida's production that impact the price consumers pay for these food items at the store. All right, thanks, Michelle. Harvest is moving along full steam ahead. USDA reporting 45% of the corn crop has been harvested. That's 5% ahead of the five-year average. For the last report on the condition of this season's corn, only 53% of the crop rated good to excellent. 21% is poor to very poor. That's a one-point decline in the good to excellent rating from last week, a one-point increase in the very poor to poor rating, continuing a long-running trend of declining conditions here late in the season. 
And soybean harvest is running well ahead of average and really took off after the first week of the month. Now 63% is harvested. That's up a whopping 19% from the previous week and 11% ahead of average. Cotton harvest rolling steadily with 37% picked, 5% ahead of the five-year average. But winter wheat, it's something we really need to keep an eye on right now with dryness plaguing many of the nation's winter wheat production areas. So far, USDA says farmers have planted 69% of the crop. That's 1% ahead of that five-year average. With wide open conditions, you would expect a faster planting pace. That typically means that producers are holding back a little bit, waiting for an improvement in moisture, waiting for rain before planting, or they're opting to dust in the crop and hoping for rain in the near future. Wheat emergence running behind normal with just 38% emerged. Normally it's 44%. Some areas are seeing record low temperatures and wind chills this morning, but this winter blast won't be sticking around for long. Meteorologist Andrew Whitmire joins us with an update. And we are almost done with that cold spell across parts of the Great Lakes and Midwestern states. And for today, that's going to start transitioning its way across upstate New York and even even into uh, parts of uh, the uh, New England coastline here as we go throughout this uh, midweek day on this Wednesday. But as we head towards late week, we're going to see more of a zonal pattern taking shape here Thursday into Friday. That's going to bring with it quieter weather. And then as we head towards this weekend, we're going to be watching a big upper level ridge trying to build across parts of the Great Lakes as well as parts of the north and east. That's going to bring with it very uh, warm above average temperatures but we'll be watching that trough developing across the west. That's going to bring with it cooler temperatures for the lower 48. Walking through that fuel like temperature after a cold start again across parts of Iowa, parts of uh, Minneapolis, as well as Wisconsin. We're going to see those uh, fuel like temperatures increasing a little bit more as we head towards the uh, afternoon hours. One more cold morning for tomorrow. And as we head towards Thursday afternoon, check out the central plains and the southern plains, even up towards Billings. 70s heading towards the central portions of the country. And that's going to work its way eastward over the course of this upcoming weekend. And farmers are still working to bring in the harvest. Pat Swatson of Iowa sharing this picture, thanking all the farmers working long days to bring in Iowa's gold. I'll more on your Ag Day forecast coming up. The Mississippi River in Memphis now sits at the lowest point ever recorded. The National Weather Service reporting it's at negative 10.75. This means the level is below the agreed upon zero level. The previous low record was set back in 1988, and because of the low levels, companies are not loading as much cargo onto ships so they can travel safely and not bottom out. Now, according to the American Commercial Barge Line, the industry has also agreed to a 25 barge tow max size. That's a maximum 38% reduction in capacity. And another river has reached its lowest point. The Platte River has reportedly dried up completely in parts of central Nebraska. Just look at these images. August and September were extremely dry months for the state, with just about an inch and a half of rain falling in Lincoln. That's the least amount of rain for that stretch since 1894. 98% of the state remains in some sort of drought, with over a third in the extreme or worse category. Flip Your Soil on Ag Day is brought to you by ESN Smart Nitrogen. Farmers getting started on a path to improving soil health can only accomplish that if they flip their soil to make it more alive. Agronomist Mitch Hora says this involves changing the dead soils on your farm by reinvigorating the microbial activity. Now he says one teaspoon of healthy soil contains more than 8 billion microbes and they need to be fed. They eat carbon. 
simple sugars. And that carbon, those simple sugars, come from plant root exudates, which are pumped into the ground via photosynthesis when there's a living plant. If we only have a living plant from mid-May till early September, it's not very much carbon being pumped in the ground. It's not very much food to feed those microbes for the off-season, and a lot of them die out. And we're not able to build up those communities and get the benefit back to us. So Horace says that's why he recommends cover crops, because they help provide that living root that can keep the microbes fed and the soil nourished to aid in better performing crops. Tuesday was a hard day for grain traders while livestock traders saw plenty of green. We'll have details next. And later, take a tour and celebrate the history of spuds. The Potato Museum chronicles one of America's most fascinating foods in the country. Corn futures fell to the lowest price in over a week due to pressure from the expanding harvest and spillover wheatness from wheat. Michelle Rook has the latest on markets right now. Tuesday's market closes higher in livestock, mostly lower in the grains. Brian Brady with Pro Farmer here with analysis. And Brian, uh, the grains harvest pressure, it looked like technical selling and maybe some export concerns kind of all press in the market. Yeah, really. Uh, you know, the harvest pace is, is ripping along. Uh, corn a little bit less than what traders anticipated, but soybeans a little bit more. Uh, you know, and then you mentioned the, the export stuff, uh, just really piling up uh, corn and soybeans here in the, the Midwest, upper Midwest, because we can't get it down the river and, and lowest levels on record for some areas of the Mississippi River. And, and so those shipping wells continue. Uh, that means we're going to have to move more product, especially soybeans, out through the Pacific Northwest. And, and we saw that in Monday's inspections that uh, a large percentage of the soybeans that were inspected for export uh, were out of the PNW. And, and I think that we'll continue to see that as we move through fall here and, and probably in early winter at least. How did that impact soybean meal on Tuesday then, Brian? Well, uh, so, you know, there's also the story out there that China was looking for alternatives to soybean meal and, and because they can't get soybeans and, and everything like that. Well, if we aren't moving soybeans out here in the United States to China, uh, that backs them up on the domestic market, which means more uh, crush and, and uh, more soy meal supplies. So all these stories kind of interweave and, and intertwine with each other. And of course, the wheat market sensitive to maybe some hopes about the export channel in Ukraine being extended. Yeah, well, that's the latest headline. So that continues to be kind of a ping ponging type of thing where uh, the wheat market's hypersensitive to the latest headlines on that situation. Uh, it's not going to be resolved anytime soon. I don't think uh, we have a November uh, deadline on that one. And uh, my anticipation is that we'll go right up to the deadline and maybe a little bit past it before we get conclusion on that. Okay. on whether it's extended or not and, and uh, you know Russia has uh, reasons to kind of slow play it and, and I think that uh, that's that's what we'll see over the next month here basically. Meanwhile livestock hire funds back in buying both cattle and hogs? Absolutely uh, bullish charts on, on both cattle uh, the highest for a front month contract in live cattle futures uh, since August of 2015. Uh, the lean hog futures they went from bearish there and, and overly pessimistic uh, to somewhat uh, bullish, and, and I think that some of that's tied to hopes that China will be a bigger importer of U.S. Uh, pork over the, the coming year. Absolutely. Thanks so much for joining us. Brian Grady with Pro Farmer. We have more Ag Day coming up.
When could you see that first fall freeze? Some areas already have, but what about the last spring freeze? Well, Purdue University's Midwest Regional Climate Center has created this cool new interactive tool. While it doesn't track what's happening in the current season, it helps put things in perspective with regards to past freezes. So it's looking at trends here. Now, it contains county information from 1950 all the way up to last year. To check it out, head to the Ag Day TV Facebook page. Andrew Woodmeyer joining us here, taking a look at our national forecast. And as we look at where the rain and precipitation is going to fall, it looks like really kind of those droughty areas in the Pacific Northwest. Yes, which is some very good news for those folks as we're going to be watching a deep trough setting up across the western half of the U.S. It's going to bring with it below average temperatures and even a little bit more active pattern taking aim. And as we expand this precipitation over the course of the next 10 days, again, we're going to be watching more of an active pattern setting up across the western half of the lower 48. And then as we move beyond next weekend, we'll be watching a few low pressure systems and a few frontal boundaries that could bring additional moisture to parts of eastern and central Texas, as well as parts of the deep south. Some of that may try to even funnel in across parts of the Ohio and Tennessee River Valleys. We're not done with the snow just yet. I know some folks like the snow, but a majority of us are not ready for those first snowflakes of the season. And up across the parts of the northern half of upstate New York, places like New Buffalo, Rochester, even the northwestern parts there of Pennsylvania could be looking at the first snowflakes flying this season. In fact, Pittsburgh would not be surprised if we have a few snowflakes flying into the air as we go on into a Wednesday afternoon and even into parts of a Thursday as well. Luckily, we shut off that snow machine by the time we head towards uh, this upcoming weekend as that big upper level ridge will be building across the eastern half of the U.S. Walking through the future radar here as we go throughout this midweek, we'll be watching that low pressure system again that's bringing that first winter taste uh, to parts of the Great Lakes, parts of the Midwest, and now across to parts of the New England uh, coastlines there. And we're going to see that eventually working its way out. We'll be watching high pressure taking over later on this week, and this warm front will begin to slide its way eastward, and that's going to pump up some milder air here across the Great Lakes and Midwestern states here as we head on into this weekend. Temperatures this afternoon, one last chilly day for much of the Great Lakes areas. And then as we head towards a Thursday morning, we're going to start to see those 40s coming back into play for overnight low temperatures. And check out this here. We're going to be watching these 70s building across the central half of the country, and that's going to eventually work its way eastward here as that low pressure system begins to work its way eastward. And we'll be watching again this upper level pattern trying to build back on in where it's been cold the past few days later on this weekend. Meanwhile, we'll be watching a cool down approaching parts of the western half of the U.S. That's a look around the country. Now let's take it a few select cities around the country. Rochester, New York, showers likely high temperature into the upper 40s. Going into Texas here, sunny and mild temperature 74 degrees. And going into Sundance, Wyoming, mostly sunny and mild high near 60. Low river levels in the U.S. are making feed expensive for China's hog farmers. We'll have details next and later French fried or in the field. If you've ever wondered about the potatoes in Idaho, you'll want to plan a trip today in the country. Those low water levels on the Mississippi River we told you about earlier are impacting China's hog producers. Market experts say problems on the Mississippi will further tighten Chinese soybean supplies and push 
soy meal prices higher. As a result, Chinese hog producers are looking for alternative protein sources. Cash soy meal prices in one province climbed to an all-time high of $789 per metric ton last week. Now that's compared with $486 at this time last year. China's soybean imports are also likely to fall to their lowest in more than two years this month, having dropped in September and August. Meat that's ready to go directly into the meat case, including pork, appears to be increasing in popularity at the grocery store. According to the Cryovac brand national meat case study, case ready now represents 83% of retail protein packages. That's up from 49% back in 2002. Now, it's led by turkey and chicken. Beef is the most likely to be cut in store, though Case Ready has increased to 71% of packages from 66% back in 2018. The study also reveals a reversal to the rise of boneless products, possibly related to the labor shortage. Since 2018, boneless beef packages dropped from 92% to 87%, and pork from 69% to 64%. Be it curlied, waffled, or crinkled, there's nearly an endless number of ways to cook potatoes. We're off to celebrate the Idaho potato next. How much do you know about potatoes? You probably know they're a popular crop in Idaho, but what about their history and what it takes to grow them? The Idaho Farm Bureau takes us to the Idaho Potato Museum where the lessons are not half-baked. Here's the, uh, what it, tell us what is this and who owns it? That's two questions. Okay, well I can answer two questions. Um, so the Idaho Potato Museum was established in 1988 by a group of volunteers and that um, became a non-profit uh, private museum entity and so there's a board of directors but the building was donated to the city of Blackfoot and they rent it to us for a dollar a year. So Blackfoot is the potato capital of the world, correct? Yeah. Because we grow more potatoes than any other county in the United States. Um, and I think the volunteers who tried to, uh, who, who established this um, wonderful idea of a potato museum, they wanted to back that claim up with a museum. So as you, as you come into the museum, you're going to find out why Idaho is a great place to raise potatoes or, or grow potatoes and why we're the potato capital of the world. Economically, why it's a great location. Right. And the next thing you're going to learn out where the potatoes come from, and you're going to find out that they come from Chile. You're going to find out how they got to Europe and how they got to um, North America. You're going to learn about growing potatoes today, what it takes, what it used to take to grow potatoes in the past, what back-breaking work that is. And then as you move into the ag room, you learn about um, some of the great inventions that happened right here in Blackfoot um, that really revolutionized the potato industry, like the Milestone Potato Seed Cutter and Spudnik's um, uh, Piler. And then there's a cafe at the yeah. end, absolutely. Like that. That's sort of like the cherry on the top, right? That is the cafe, so they can actually eat an Idaho baked potato. Does everyone here that come here, do they all know that Idaho is the potato state? Or Yes. I'm well, and, and I think that originates with the Idaho Potato Commission. You know, they started operating in 1947, and they did a massive 
oh, well, just a great job spreading the world that Idaho potatoes were the best potatoes. And there's a reason for it. It's our soil, it's our climate, it's um, our aquifer, the amount of um, water that we can just put down on those buds and it's just exactly right in the nutrients from the aquifer and from the soil. So we grow amazing potatoes. It's just what we do. Our thanks to the Idaho Farm Bureau for sharing that story. And that's all the time we have this morning. We're sure glad you tuned in. From all of us here at Ag Day, I'm Clinton Griffiths. Have a great day.